Hello and a really warm welcome to this uh, roundtable discussion uh, supported by the, the EDGE Foundation. Uh, I am Debbie McVitie, I'm editor of Wonky, the sector's daily port of call for all your higher education news policy and analysis. Uh, and I'm really excited today to be chairing this discussion, which is about higher education innovation. Um, and and is it particularly in the context of the global pandemic that, uh, that we're, all, we're all continue to live through despite, despite everyone's best efforts. Um, and, and, and particularly thinking about, you know, what, what, where innovation has come from, what that experience has been like during the pandemic, um, and, and where we go next. Uh, in a minute, I'm going to ask each of our uh, roundtable participants to introduce themselves and say a little bit about the institution that they're from. I think what's so interesting is is the diversity of different types of institution we've got with us today. So I think there's, you know, there, there can absolutely be no case that innovation only happens in one part of the sector or in one type of institution. We've got loads of really great examples. I'm certainly hoping to learn a great deal. Um, and the context is that the Edge Foundation. Uh, earlier in 2021, published some case study examples in a report called Rethinking Higher Education Case Studies for the 21st Century. I think it is, it's a sort of, it's a known thing that uh, what, 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 what gets you one place won't necessarily get you to the next place. And, and in higher education, there's been a, quite a sort of long-standing question about where, where innovation happens, what the changing needs of students, uh, the, the labour market, the country will be um, in, in, in the decades beyond. Uh, and of course as, as people sort of try and innovate and try and think through what what new ways of of delivering education might look like for the 21st century um and then and then of course grappling with the in, enormous transformative power of, of having to deal with that in, the, in a global pandemic that might that might change what sorts of innovation are required uh, again so we're going to try and kind of unpack some of that um think through uh, what does innovation look like what are those common themes uh, what what, uh, what has worked during the pandemic what 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 may need to change for the future um and we'll all have a really interesting conversation I hope so as promised uh, let me come to each of you in turn um, if you could each say uh, just introduce yourself your institution um, and say something about what you think makes your uh, the provision that that you offer in innovative and distinctive and I will come in I, I will go in the order that I can see you in my gallery so that means uh, Robin can I come to you first please Absolutely. So Robin Skelton, um, I lead external affairs at the Dyson Institute of Engineering and Technology and a key part of my job is ensuring compliance with the regulatory framework for higher education. So since 2017, the Dyson Institute's been supporting WMG, the University of Warwick, to deliver a degree apprenticeship in engineering to undergraduate engineers at Dyson. And last year, we became the first provider in the UK to be awarded new degree awarding powers. And so from September this year, we will be delivering and awarding that degree. I think. Um, in terms of what's unique about us, we are based Based on the Dyson Technology Campus in Malmesbury, our students work three days per week in Dyson where they're employed as undergraduate engineers working on live engineering projects. They spend two days in a mixture of lectures and self-taught study. They're paid a salary and they're not charged tuition fees. Um, everything takes place on the same site, making it a really holistic, integrated experience. Summers are spent working on projects designed to focus on and develop professional skills rather than being on holiday. And key to our offering is our focus on health and well-being. Fantastic, thank you so much. Uh, Wendy, can I come to you? Yes, certainly. Um, I'm Wendy Ivins. I'm the Director of Collaborative Learning with Industry at um, the School of Computer Science and Informatics at Cardiff University. Um, but part of my role involves being the academic lead of the National Software Academy. And um, we teach uh, software engineering at, at Software Academy in the hope that we can make our students more employable. So our key ways of doing this was to work much closer with industry partners so that we're able to give our students projects throughout their degree course. So it's almost like they get their work experience embedded into the, to the course itself. So they typically do about um, six to seven weeks in terms of the learning that they need within a, um, the modules. And then their last sort of four weeks are spent doing projects with real clients. And it means as well that staff work very collaboratively as well, so that the projects span across the different modules that are being done and uh, the students are then ass assessed across these. So, it's a very collaborative way of working in terms of um, from the staff, from the industry, from the students' point of view. And it certainly has helped to improve the students' employability skills. Um, and also uh, more recently, in the last two years, we've also introduced a degree apprenticeship. So instead of the students doing their, their projects 
while um, in the uh, sort of classroom uh, and our classrooms have been set up to be like a, a work office, they're actually doing it in the workplace. Super, thank you so much. Uh, Diana, can I come to you? Our, our international correspondent. Uh, hello everyone, my name is Diana Elazar and I'm representing Minerva Schools at KGI today. Um, so Minerva is a university that started around almost a decade ago and we've uh, graduated three classes, both undergraduate and graduate. The idea behind Minerva is really to transform what uh, a selective higher education university would look like. So what we do is we have changed what you know, higher education uh, institutions teach. So our curriculum is intentionally designed to impart what we call enduring skills. These are critical thinking, um, uh, creative thinking, collaboration, communication, intentionally. So they are part of the curriculum. Second is our pedagogy is based on decades of the science of learning. So it's fully active learning. And third is where we teach, and that's both classes happen online. Um, they're not lectures, they're classes which are seminar-based and fully interactive. But also the other component is that our students within four years live in seven different cities in seven different countries and have a lot of experiential learning, internships, and, and civic um, uh, participation in, in those countries. Yes, yeah, so when, when I read about your offer, I confess to being a little bit jealous of those students getting to travel the world while learning at the same time. I mean, what, 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 what an experience that must be. Um, and one of the themes, of course, that we've, we've, we've had so far in the conversation is, is setting things up from, from scratch. And of course, when you, when you do that, you have a lot of opportunity to innovate because, you know, you're essentially charting your own path. But Sam, at Salford, you've, you've been uh, involved in an enormous transformation process in a university that's delivering in one way to try and deliver in a completely different way. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yep, absolutely. Uh, thank you. So yes, it, it's, it's definitely a, a process of, of reshaping and re-engineering in, in response to the, the external environment, particularly given the, the pandemic and the, and the way that is reshaping and reshaping, if I can call it that. So in terms of university sovereignty history, um, it's, always, it's always been uh, very closely linked with industry. And um, at the moment where we are, we offer a broad range of programmes. So I know apprenticeships have been talked about previously. We offer a range of apprenticeships. We offer foundation degrees, um, undergraduate, postgraduate and, and research degrees as well. And that's sitting across, again, a broad metropolitan portfolio, arts, humanities and sciences. And so I suppose key to that portfolio and perhaps a bit about what makes it special is the way that it knits together to recognise the, the changing industry landscape of today and the increasingly data-driven landscape we live in. Um, and th that's also where our research strengths play into the space and combine with the teaching. And fundamentally, I suppose it, it's about, again, and th these have been mentioned before, but real world problem-based outward facing education towards employability. And to that end, as I've mentioned previously, industry collaboration, it's, it's steeped in our history, but it's everything we do and the way we do everything and work with work and delivery of that curriculum in partnership with industry from the multinational to the SME. We've got a huge concentration of SMEs within our region um, it is absolutely part of our curriculum. And again, in, in that respect, we're not necessarily unique, but I think the interdisciplinarity and cross-disciplinary working which faces off into that swiftly changing business and industry landscape is quite special for a university in our nature and our size and it's yielding positive results. Ultimately, um, it's about productivity and we're about productivity and that's very much a civic productivity with that landscape in mind to help continue to develop our region and our communities and their strengths and then continually to seek to look for better ways in which that research informed teaching, learning and curriculum equips then our students and our graduates with a future-facing skill set which acknowledges the portfolio careers in the disrupted industry landscapes of the 21st century. It's a very interesting time, again, exacerbated by the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, 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 so, there's so many themes coming out that, uh, that I'm going to want to pick up on, so, so brace yourselves. But, uh, but and, Andrew, let me come to you. Uh, a four-star hotel on the University of Essex campus. I mean, that sounds like a, a lovely environment when we're not in the middle of a pandemic. 
it's it's lovely as long as you're not working in it, of course. Mm. A different sort of thing. And, and equally, it seems to be a range of themes here. And I was about to say we're unique, but I've, I've just realised that we're most probably not unique amongst this particular group. Um, Edge Hotel School is, um, well, a, a department of the University of Essex now. Um, and yes, as you say, we have a four-star commercial hotel. This isn't a training hotel, it is actually a commercial hotel. Um, and we don't tell anybody that actually this is an educational institution um, on the basis that we don't want our customers to know they're their full rate paying customers. So our students are studying degrees in hotel management and events management, uh, University of Essex degrees. The actual building is a 40 bedroom uh, four star hotel, country house hotel, but it's set on the campus right into a corner of the campus. Um, so, as I say, we, we retain this slight distance from the main university, but our students are studying in the same way as any other university students will do. They go to lectures and seminars, but they also have a big hand in running the hotel. Uh, at earlier levels, they're in operational aspects, and then they go into supervisory, and then in the final year, they, they effectively manage the hotel. Um, we also have kind of bucked the trend a little bit in that we have two-year degrees, which means that, uh, like others here, the, the students will be working over summer, over Christmas, because the hotel industry doesn't shut. Um, and apart from when you get COVID, um, but nonetheless, you know, we should be open 24, 365 days a year. So, yeah, our students are there um, mixing real world engagement, running a, a hotel with their educational program. And similar to other people here, uh, I think our phrase is industry engaged education at every level in every module. We expect to have industry engagement. Um, and that's been really very useful in the last year or so uh, when students haven't been able to be on campus, but I'm sure we'll touch on that later. Absolutely, and, and thank, thank you thank you all for setting that out. And, and of course, do go and uh, if you want the kind of more in depth about what each of each of these providers is, is doing and thinking about, do go and, and read that Edge Foundation report. Um, wealth, wealth of insight to be, to be gained from doing that. But I mean, so before we get into the pandemic, can I just explore this kind of question of pedagogy um, a little bit more? Because I think that that consistency of um, I guess active learning, uh, problem-based learning, and, and industry-engaged learning, I think is 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 reason reasonably consistent across the piece. Um, and I'm curious, I think. Uh, how I, I I think I can see on on the on the face of it a strong appeal to students, but I'm I'm quite interested in your experience about what it's been like transitioning students into that sort of different pedagog you know different pedagogical environment, because of course you're asking students to learn in a rather different way than they might have done at the you know earlier in their educational experience. So um, you know I'll, I guess I'll, I'll I'll direct questions to individuals, but you know as as the conversation uh, evolves, do kind of pop your hand up if you want to jump in and 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 I'll call on you. But but Robin, can can I ask you about that and and what you know, what's that what's that kind of transition experience be, been for your students, and how have you kind of evolved to to meet their needs in that way? Yeah, I mean, so thinking about the kind of normal times outside of the pandemic, I actually think transparency is absolutely key. And when we look at the Dyson Institute model, it it's it's hard, it's challenging. I mean, compounded by the fact that actually we're in the middle of nowhere in the Cotswolds, so you're not just talking about a different approach to learning, you know, with and and the fact they're employees with expectations on them as employees in the Dyson company, as well as this different way of learning. But we also have potentially have a very different environment um, in terms of where we're based to from where they come from. And I think the best thing you can do is be absolutely transparent in your admissions process, have as many pre-joining events as possible, as many opportunities for questions as possible, get those individuals on campus. That's for sure been a challenge <laughs> over the past year so that they can really understand and and what you're offering and not make the choice to come to you if it's not right and actually in our case I think the combination of that Dyson brand which is undeniably very very appealing and the fact that they're not going to pay tuition fees it makes us highly attractive the hard thing is actually getting people to understand that it for many people it isn't the right choice and it's so important that we give the people the, the individuals who want to come to us the ability to understand and set themselves up for success if that makes some sense. Absolutely, and I mean, Wendy, in the context of um, of, of 
of, of tra training people to be software engineers I mean are you recruiting students who already have that aspiration and are very kind of confident about what that looks like or is there actually a bit is it a bit of a uh, do you, you know do you need to kind of build build things in to support students to learn, learn in that different way it's certainly a, a mixture so um some of the students that join us have got uh computing a level and have, have had experience but we've also got uh, some students who learn computing uh, from first principles already on the course we're, we're lucky in a way because we've, we've still got a computer science degree that um, runs at our uh, Cardiff campus um, so if somebody wants to do a more traditional uh, computer science course that's available but we've always uh, sort of um, marketed the software engineering courses as, as an opportunity for people to work on real projects in teams and in an environment that, that's sort of more office based so they've got that uh, experience as they as they go as they go through so it tends to be the ones that do want that sort of um the, the working with clients that that that, that join join the course uh, andrew i saw that your hand was up did you want to come in here yeah, no, so I was just going to agree with Robin. I think the transparency bit is absolutely crucial. Um, and it, it's got to be spelt out very, very clearly, clearly when students are, and parents as well are considering these sorts of programmes so that you don't get this idea of being missold when you actually get there or disappointment. Uh, and I think showing people around a location is really important. But I think you've also got to be a little bit careful because um, we find that students get to see the things they want to see. So walking around a four-star hotel, um, they like the idea of being there, but perhaps not working in it because it's very different back of house. Mm. Um, and I think the mantra that we keep trying to say to the students is, you're not only going to become a student, a higher education student in the Edge Hotel School and uh, of the University of Essex, but you're also going to be a young professional. And the first day you arrive, you take on both of those roles right from the start that you're not just going to be a typical student, you are going to have different expectations. And I think that's important to stress the professional nature of the, that aspect of, of their development. I mean, and Diana, I mean, I've no doubt when students are signing up to, to the Minerva experience, it, you know, they, they know fully that what that involves because it's such because it's such a unique experience but you know learning to learn online is something that we've all seen students struggle with um over the course of the pandemic and you know what 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 is it that that, that helps students to be able to engage in that kind of environment right so first i i will agree with what Robin said how important the admission process is and not just about being transparent about selection so when we select our students we don't rely on exams, standardized tests, all the traditional things that other universities do, because these are not good proxies for ability, competence, um, hunger to learn, all of that. So we have our own set of admissions, which are in-depth interviews, challenges they have to solve. So it already selects people who are more apt to succeed in such an environment. Um, and in terms of having transparency, yes, we talk to each family ahead of time, we, um, we invite them over for a week in February when they've been accepted, when they're still deciding whether to enroll, et cetera, or not. And, and back to your question on, you know, how do they get to learn online? Obviously, there's a, a growing pains uh, period at the beginning uh, because they have to be much more independent than they were before. But I think a lot of the pains that maybe other institutions have had with online learning, it's because I mean, I, I mean, I hate to say it, but probably because the quality is, was not, is not great. Uh, and it's not because it's online. It was probably not great before when it was in person. Um, so for us, there are very small classes. We have 20 students per class. It's a very engaging environment. You have to have your video on. You speak all the time. Uh, you can't really be at the back and do something else. So they're very, very engaged. And that is taxing uh, because the concentration is enormous. I've taken a, a few classes and I was deadly tired at the beginning. Um, but after a few months, they cannot even imagine a class which is not like that. Yes, I see. And 
Sam, I mean, obviously, Salford, you know, you, you sort of a, a mission for the kind of for the, for your for you know for your region for the community, um, and and sort of I guess strong widening participation shops as well. Is that something that you're kind of mindful of as you're thinking about introducing students to that to that different way of learning? I mean, you you must take lots of students with VTEX, for example, um, and does that does that actually in some ways perhaps ease the transition? Yeah, I think I think the the you know any transition from a prior prior educational experience into university, there's always a bump there. It's impossible to, so it's acknowledging the difficulties in that bump. And I think there's, I suppose there's two things to, to, to respond to your question. I think the first thing is that we, we, uh, we work quite hard, both in the pre-arrival stage and through that crucial first trimester, we have trimesters at Salford, to really make sure that we understand our students and who they are because then we're not trying to transform them into a different kind of person. We're trying to make them more them. Mm. And so it's acknowledging the intelligences, the behaviors, the strengths of our particular cohort um, uh, and the places it comes, the diverse kind of places it comes from in order that we can make them better them rather than operate from a deficit model, which says, come to us and we will make you like us, which is perhaps reductive in nature. So the first thing is there's a real acknowledgement prior to arrival and through that first trimester that actually they're coming into a new place and they're coming into uh, an environment they may be unfamiliar with, some, you know, some anxiety there, absolutely, but that's normal and we need to help scaffold them through that transition. I suppose part of what we do from the point of engagement onwards is begin to get them to look at the exit door in one year, three years, however, however many years it be. And that really comes back down to our curriculum design principles, um, uh, which are in the case study you referenced earlier. There's a diagram uh, explaining them. And one of them is about path to professional. So right from the get go, we're saying, actually, this is what you're here to do. And we're going to help you here to do it by making you stronger, better, leaner, meaner, quicker, faster, dot, dot, dot. Um, and this is this is how we're going to do it. But it's about you actually beginning to think of yourself as a professional from the get go. Now, obviously, that's going to be that's going to be shaped, for, for instance, in our nursing provision, then it might be in our graphic design provision. But the path to professional is laid out using the student journey as the core all the way through the degree so that actually they're beginning to consider well, what, what might I use this for and how do I consider myself as a professional? And then the final piece there is then the attendance skill set. And by skill set, I mean soft skills, hard skills, behaviours, attitudes and aptitudes are then begin to, begin to help them in that first semester, particularly. So we've got, we've got a learn to learn programme in effect, which helps them learn with that in mind, acknowledging where they've come from. And, and the job that they're here to do, which is about fundamentally about employability in that disrupted landscape. So yes, we, we do we do take a huge amount of time, and and there's always more we can do. That transition is a is a problem to be navigated, not solved. Yeah, I'm 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 a little scared of your graduates. <laughs> they, they they sound practically bionic, uh, but uh, but but it's it's I think it's it's really interesting that you say you know this this is a space where students can be more themselves, and I think that's. You know, sort of an, an essential aspect of the sort of innovative space where it's mm. we're not saying there's this, this one thing called higher education and and, and you're, you're either in or you're out. And I think so, so much of the national discourse, I think, sort of assumes that that's how it should be. Um, and this is, a, I guess, a kind of a true form of widening participation, perhaps you, you, you might argue. And so, OK, so we've got we've got these sort of active, active pedagogies, lots of employer engagement, lots of lots of lots of interaction between students. Um, and then, of course, the pandemic hits and all of this has got to be kind of put online in some way or another. So. You know what? 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 Um, I guess tactics did you adopt to try and kind of keep the spirit of that um, that experience for your students as best as possible? Um, and and I think especially when that kind of that transition happened essentially over, overnight by eighteen months ago. Um, and, and Andrew, can I can I start with you as being I, I guess of of everyone the most kind of uh, you know hoteling and and the hotel industry is so very in person. You know how did that how did that translate? Yeah, so I suppose we had a, a double whammy. Not only was higher education shut down, but also hotels and hospitality was shut down. So there wasn't even the opportunity of looking at, at other options or other hotels or other types of work experience. Um, the transition, uh, I vaguely remember it as completely chaotic, uh, um, very creative. Um, what well, I did have hair at the time, but that's gone. Um, we First of all, had, I think we had a first short period where we actually had some students who we felt we had to deal with immediately. So we, we put together what we called virtual shifts. Um, and these were effectively online 
um, activities that they could engage with, which mirrored their intended learning outcomes. Um, to say they were successful, brilliant, would be an overstatement. I don't think they were. Um, it was a transitionary method, but it got us through a couple of months, which gave us a breathing space to, to look fundamentally at what we were going to do uh, with the students. And what we came up with was, yes, a different type of virtual shift, um, looking at the intended learning outcomes, but also going back to our ethos of industry-engaged education. Um, because we had really good connections with the industry um, and we had a lot of goodwill there, we decided it was time to cash in and capitalise on a lot of people who were sitting at home with, dare I say it, limited amounts to do and a lot of goodwill. So we actually created workshops, um, whole courses really, which were run by people from industry, by various different brands and companies. So we had the Dorchester collection coming along and they actually delivered part of their graduate training scheme to our final year students, which of course helps them immensely to increase their profile, but also gives our students that really, um, I suppose, granular feel of what's going on in industry. Um, we were helped by other organizations, Leonardo Hotels and, and Juries Inn, who brought in their senior managers to, to run workshops. And so rather than just having, yes, the academic side and the lectures and seminars carried on regardless, but on the practical side, what we had was as far as is possible, an immersion into industry and a, a real understanding of the traumas that were going on in the industry at the moment and what the managers were thinking about in the future. Um, and we we're also very lucky to have what we called um, community events, where we gathered a range of professionals from the events industry, um, so people from the O2 and, and Wembley and places like that to have a panel, but we also had hotel managers. Um, and then we have ran several of these where, yes, it was a bit like question time, where we were asking questions and they were coming out with answers, but then we encouraged the students to engage with those professionals. Um, is it preferable to actually being in the hotel? I suspect that students would say they'd still prefer to be in there because they tend to enjoy the actual personal experience. Um, but as a supplement, I think it has been working reasonably well. And I hate to say it, I think this is something that we're going to have to keep on the back burner, certainly for the next few years, because the future is by no means certain. Absolutely, and I, I mean, things. Two things I really love about that. One, one is that sort of, um, you know, what, 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 what are the resources we've got, and how can we, how can we kind of do th do things with those resources? And that I think is kind of, you know, the, the soul of innovation, isn't it? Is to kind of make, you know, use use what you've got as best you can, and do, some, do something a bit different. Superb, it's either a mark of superb and supreme leadership, or sheer panic. I'd suggest it's the latter. <laughs> But you can always you can always reverse engineer after the fact. Um, and uh, there was a second thing, but I've forgotten what it was. So I think we'll just we'll just draw a veil over that and, and move swiftly on. Um, Diana, can I can I come to you? Because of course all your students signed up to learn online, and and that's exactly. But but part of that experience was was is supposed to be kind of moving around the world, living in community. You know that that sort of civic engagement. I mean, how did how did that change, or or what, what to what extent were students able to engage with that during the pandemic? Yeah, so maybe we were at the other extreme uh, from Andrew, where in the sense that our learning was not disrupted by a day because all of it was intentionally set up to be virtual. Um, classes were not disrupted. However, uh, we had around 600 students, virtually none of them in their home city and maybe over 90% of them not in their home countries. Mm. And a lockdown happened. And our challenge was uh, helping and ensuring most of these students were able to go back home. And, and that was a logistical uh, challenge. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was a lot of work. However, what we were lucky with is that we could keep all our residential halls. So no student was kicked out. We, they were encouraged to go home when and if they could. So we, from that perspective, there was more stability than I think for many, many other students around the world. That their academics were maintained, their housing, was maintained and they could go home and continue their studies if they wanted to. 
Obviously, there was an experiential part of the program. Luckily, our semester ends at the end of April. So when the lockdown happened, in most countries, we were really towards the end. And the uncertainty we had was over the summer is that what were we going to do over the fall? And uh, whether we're going to maintain our global rotations, et cetera, or not. And, and these decisions were, you know, as you remember last year, the situation was changing every week. Um, so at the end, we, what we decided to do for fall 2020, so from September to December last year, was enable only two locations, which were Berlin and London, which were doing at the beginning better than other countries. Um, and we had our students there, those who wished to go and those who didn't could stay remote. Uh, and a lot of the, and then in the second and the next semester, so January to April of this year, Korea, Seoul was an option because that was a safe place to go. But there were obviously some challenges. In Seoul, they had to quarantine for two weeks in a semi-prison uh, before, before they could go back China, to, the, to the outer world. In terms of the experiences, they were, I would say, somewhere hybrid, somewhere online. We could, we could bring employers to have uh, sessions online. For example, as our students were in Taiwan uh, at the end of uh, 2020, the semester, uh, they were able to, they were supposed to have a meeting with the president, the Taiwanese president in person, and that happened online. So they still had a lot of these experiences uh, virtually, and we kind of gradually uh, had some nature, um, environmental, I would say, experiences outside. So it was a hybrid. But I would say the biggest challenge for us was, was moving people uh, to go home uh, once the pandemic and lockdown hit last spring. Yes, I can only imagine what a, what a, what a, what a a challenge that must have been to kind of worry about and, and to worry about everyone's sort of well-being and, and at, the, at the same time and and I, I think but I do I think there's something quite interesting about the way the pandemic because I think there's sort of two versions and I think you know some people will have people have experienced it differently one one is where people people lost opportunities or they didn't get things that they were expecting to get and then there's a version that says well the, the, the thing that you got wasn't what you expected but it may have equipped you with skills or, or allowed you to reframe your kind of understanding of the industry in a different way um, and that 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 can be uh differently useful i'm not sure we can sort of say more or less but but you know that that's a that's a different experience but it still it still means something it's still important um wendy i mean thinking about then that sort of relationship with employers particularly i mean i can sort of see how it's possible to transition software engineering into an online space and you know and, and, and you know one of the things your case study mentions is that a, a lot of a, you know your students were using things like online project management tools anyway but in terms of those kind of really necessary kind of interactions with employers and building those networks and um, and, and that sort those sorts of relationships that, that that students kind of really gain from how did that translate into the online space for you project side of it worked really well. I, I think in, in some ways it was easier for our clients because they could they had the time to join us um, online because of the pandemic. The industry was going this way anyway. You know, a lot of the companies, uh, software companies we were working with um, had their people working at home as well. So we were all going through the same sort of problems, but it meant that we all, uh, there was a lot more flexibility as well in terms of the clients being able to meet up with the, the students. Um, so that side of it worked nicely. It, it's just perhaps some of the other things that are nice to do. We, we, we managed to get quite a lot of companies coming in and giving talks um, that aligned with modules, but the, the sort of the, the coming in and doing networking sessions and um, sorting out placements and that sort of side of it. Um, those things were a little bit more challenging. They still went uh, ahead, but um, it, was, it was a harder, it was harder to get the students and the, the companies in, engaged in terms of uh, meeting up. And, and I think because of the uncertainty as well, because we've been going through lockdown after lockdown, um, trying to take somebody on um, over for three months over the summer is it was a, big commitment when it was it's you know it's still unclear exactly what's going on mm. and Sam I mean you know employers that you work with must have been going through absolute 
you know trauma themselves you know thinking about you know you know would, would they still exist after the pandemic you know how many staff did they have to put on furlough and all that kind of thing i mean how did you find that affected your ability to maintain those relationships and and and, and sort of keep 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 their engagement with the the educational side of what they, of what they were doing I think, you know, it would be remiss of me to say it wasn't disrupting and continues to be disrupting <laughs> as everyone navigate, navigates the next normal or the new normal or whatever we might be calling it this week. But but I think the the relationships, particularly with course teams, in actually uncovering what might work, you know, this is where our course teams have got absolute connections at the grassroots into, into, into industry. And obviously we were continued, we continue to engage with the professional regulatory and statutory bodies to actually take a steer from them as well. So the 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 answer i have is an is unfortunately messy but actually mm. the messiness is is the characteristic of the answer and the answer was many and varied conversations on an ongoing basis using the contacts and the connections that we've got in order to arrive at a best working practice for the student and all of that was focused on um the learning outcomes so how can we different how can we work with our employees to continually different, to satisfy these learning outcomes in a different manner. So yes, it was disruptive and continues to be, but I think by, by, by it's the effort put into that continual dialogue and maintaining that dialogue, because just when, just when you feel you should be retracting and just concentrating on what's on my desk today because of all these things piling up, that's the exact moment when you need to open the door and have a conversation, because otherwise what will happen, it happens in a bubble. And then later down the line, Bubble, bubbles always break in the interface. They're perfect in the bubble, um, but um, uh, it'll, it'll cause problems. So I think there was and continues to be significant effort in maintaining those relationships, both at you know, program level with the industry contacts that an individual module leader might have through to conversations with PSRBs um, and, and, and it, it, it goes on. Um, and I think we are, we are in a, perhaps in a, in, a, in a different space now uh, as to as to opposed to to the early early point of the pandemic, where some of the reactions are the other people are recounting, I absolutely recognise that. Right, okay, it's today, is it? Okay, let's get on. Um, and and uh, um, now we're in a more considered space. And I suppose what we're seeking to do now is almost not to reach a point of it's going to be like this, but to recognise that we've got an iterative development. So almost, whereas at the start, we needed conclusions and we need them by four o'clock. Thank you. Mm. Now we're actually a space where, where I'm, I'm resisting nailing things down definitively because actually I, I sense that there's going to be an iterative conversation on how best to equip our students and what the relationship might mean because everyone's figuring out that space. And um, in that respect, I think we all need to get, again, a, a little bit comfortable with being uncomfortable because it's going to be uncomfortable for a while. And everyone wants fixedness, but um, I, I think that I would counsel against that. Sorry, I wandered off topic there a little bit. No, I think I think I think that's really interesting. Kind of point to pull out because of course when times are uncertain and the world keeps changing and no one really knows what's going to happen in the next you know you know year never mind decade the thing that you want to invest in is the quality of your relationships and Absolutely. the and and the and I guess your your organisational innovation and, and collaboration capacity so that you're prepared for the future whatever that future may hold and I think that, exactly. that's that, yeah. that's I think that's I think that's a really a really important lesson uh, for the whole sector not just the kind of you know the kind of the cutting edge <laughs> bit of it um Robin can I can I ask you about relationships with students because obviously that's sort of you know trying trying to maintain that kind of sense of a community and engagement um during the pandemic must, yeah. must have been a challenge I mean how did you how did you handle that it was and I've, I've been reflecting on this um and I think something that I have reflected on is the importance of organisational culture and of values, I think, has really been emphasised by the crisis. So in our case, I think we were really lucky that our culture was already set up to provide a clear North Star, if you like, in terms of guiding us through the pandemic. And what I mean is that we are absolutely crystal clear, we have been since our conception, that the health and well-being of our students has to be at the centre of our decision making. And how that manifested in the pandemic was that the first thing we asked ourselves was, how are we going to know how every individual is doing and how we can support them? And how are we going to maintain a sense of community that we know is so important to supporting welfare? And so one of the first activities we undertook was mapping our communications platforms and mechanisms and working out how we needed to adjust them. 
So obviously we immediately pivoted to online student support provision. There was no delay um, and we ensured that student support conversations were being proactively booked in. If we weren't hearing from individuals, we were checking in with them. That's, by the way, something we do normally do, but we've been doing it with particular rigor. We also enhanced that provision. So as an example, we implemented a framework called the Five Ways to Wellbeing to encourage our undergraduates to take control of their own well-being. And we asked them and staff to share ideas of things that were working for them in video form. And that was a great community builder as well. We set up cohort channels on Microsoft Teams so that we could have more meaningful discursive chats with particular cohorts that were a bit more tailored. We also, in, in normal times, if you like, always have weekly meetings. They're called Friday morning meetings for all staff and students. And we spend half an hour together in person. We just moved that online. So we continued to have that once a week get together. And we reviewed the content of those meetings and gave them a bit more of a well-being focus, introducing things like that work five ways to well-being framework. I think another important thing is we didn't forget about our student rep structures just because we weren't in person we actually put a lot of effort into leveraging those structures and making sure they continued to function because I think hopefully we can all agree that they are of unparalleled usefulness in working out what is actually going on with the student body and generating community activities and all of that kind of thing and actually just as an example we held our mid-year meeting of student reps online and we got pizza delivered to the houses <laughs> to make it <laughs> quite a community activity. Um, at, and just a, a couple more examples. So at the height of the pandemic, we set up a weekly Slido. We gave every student the opportunity to ask any questions they had about the pandemic, about our response on a weekly basis. And we published the responses to those questions. And our director was sending out weekly emails, reflecting on concerns, you know, trying to, to reinforce that sense of community. Did we get everything right? No. Is our community as strong as it was? I, I don't think it is. And I think there's lots to address as we start to reopen. But overall, I think that general commitment to open communication and really having quite an unwavering focus on welfare did do a lot to support relationships with students. And it all flowed from the right cultural values being there in the first place. Yeah, it wouldn't be a rep meeting without pizza being delivered, whatever. The, whatever it's the, an essential. Whatever, whatever the circumstances, every, everyone knows that student, student voice flows from, from melted cheese. Um, and, and, I, and I say that, you know, from, 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 from deep experience. Um, I mean, I'm really interested. One of the themes that I, that I pick up looking across each, each of your different, very, you know, very different case studies is this theme of personalization, of, of kind of being responsive to the individual student, of, of, of trying to set that student on a trajectory that meets their aspirations. And I sort of understand how you can do that at a reasonably, I mean, for, you know, on a, on a reason, comparatively small scale, I realise, you know, Robin, having kind of old, like a, a very large community of students to, to work with probably doesn't doesn't feel like small scale. But, um, you know, if you think of how higher education has traditionally been delivered, it's, you know, it, it is it, it is to very large cohorts. Um, and I'm sort of I'm curious about how how you're thinking about that as we come out of the pandemic and, and about how, how to kind of, I guess, you know, remake those connections and, and re-establish re that sort of sense of what that of, of what, what that personalisation um, experience for students looks like and um, Wendy can I can I ask you about that? I think one of the biggest influences in terms of the student sort of culture and, and student experience was actually the team working for um, as in you know it's, a, it's, it's probably what differentiates software engineering just from pure computer science in a lot of ways that working in team mm. and seeing how the students would collaborate together, they would uh, review each other's code and trying to improve it and work in pairs when they had problems and all those sorts of things not only sort of helped them build the, co the community between themselves but also um, helped to, them to get to know each other and to improve the quality of what it is that we were doing. But what we also noticed was that when um, if the team was working well, the experience was fantastic. But online, if the teams weren't working very well and problems occurred, it would be a lot harder for them, for the students to be dealing with it because they wouldn't be meeting face to face to solve these things. And we, we occasionally had to intervene with some of the teams and try to help to, re, to resolve that. You know, we, we probably did that a little bit more than we would have done under normal circumstances. So. It, it, you have to put a little bit more effort in to support the, the students uh, at the time when there's there are these sort of issues because it is you know they're so isolated anyway you don't want them to, to feel that or feel that they're unsupported uh, 
in these very difficult um, circumstances that they're working in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to sort of pause in case anybody wants to kind of add add to that. I think that sort of covers the question. I mean, I, I think we are we're we're kind of we're on the last leg of our conversation, and I think it, it's it's probably time to move on move on to lessons. And I think the way I quite like to do this, uh, if if that's okay with you, is um, ask a twofold question, which I'm happy to repeat if uh, if, if the kind of elements of it. Uh, get get lost in the conversation one I think is about you know novel things that are absolutely going to be retained you know the, pan the pandemic kind of you know ca caused creativity uh to happen kind of kind of by default really and are there things that that actually you think you, you will keep doing because they they worked work well perhaps worked as well as they could in the circumstances but may work even better in a, in a different kind of uh you know post-pandemic but also did the pandemic teach you about something that you might have been doing that actually we wasn't wasn't necessary or or, or are there things that you can actually stop doing um based on based on lessons lessons coming out of the pandemic or, or or that you'll do kind of really quite differently going forward um and um and, and I'll, i think I'll, I'll sort of just round robin this one but um diana can i come to you first for that one sure um, so yeah, I mean, from our perspective, there were not many, many things that we had to change or pivot, but one that we did was our graduation ceremony, actually. And we had already a very unconventional graduation, which was not walk on stage, get your degree, hear a speech and go sit down. It was a three, four day event where we invested as uh, when we invited as many guests from the professional academic political spheres to have debates with our students uh, on consequential matters and our our graduation is called consequence so one of the things we had to do in 2020 is do this virtually um, because for obvious reasons and what we found out that we could engage people who might not have traveled to san francisco nobel prize winners uh, CEOs of big companies, etc. So, and this year we did it again, although there was a component of, of students in San Francisco who could get together for other events. But it made us wonder whether we should at least maintain part of that event virtually, because it actually allowed more, um, what we called, we used to call luminaries or guests to be part of that conversation. So it's probably a thing we're going to retain. Um, and the next question was... Is there, is there anything you're going to stop doing? You sort of think, actually, we were, we were doing that because we didn't need to, and we, and we can absolutely stop doing that now. Well, that's more on the staff side. It's, it seems to me that no one's really going to the office anymore. In <laughs> <laughs> Although they can, once they're vaccinated, it's, uh, we're, we're a very remote company. Uh, you know, I'm in Switzerland, I have a colleague in Trinidad, I thought it was a joke, but no, he is in Trinidad, we're, we're all over the place. But we did have this office in San Francisco where maybe 50% of the workforce was going there. And I think that's becoming um, less of a thing. We'll see. Mm. Yes, yeah, I sort of hesitate to jump jump to fixed conclusions about that sort of thing, but yes. it is it it does it does raise really interesting questions about how being a higher education professional might look um, in the future. Um, Sam, can I come to you? Same question: What are you going to What are you going to keep doing? But also, is there anything that you think we absolutely don't need to do that anymore, given our learnings from the pandemic? Yeah, so so um, hopefully succinct answer. I think one thing that um, the pandemic has taught us, and we we kind of knew it before, and we were, we were. We were comfortably in that direction, but actually this has strengthened it and actually given us more, I suppose, more grist of the mill, is the way we engage and involve our students and our students' union in um, uh, communications and problem identification rather than consulting about how we would like to do, how we would like to do the solution after the fact. Now we were doing that already, but what became particularly around communication, I think, I think uh, our students have been in, in the room with some of our regional health bodies, with uh, colleagues from the university, when we're all actually, particularly in the early, early stages, going, okay, so what should, how are we gonna do this? And actually problem definition, having the students union there, we've got, we've got an exceptional relationship with the students union and they, to, to, to put not too fine a point on it, they've played an absolute blinder 
um, and we and they have significantly not informed our decisions. They've co-created and co-produced our decisions. So that ethos of co-creation, co-production, but it not really being consultation with it, genuinely being. We, do, we don't even know what the problem is together yet. Let's co-define that. Then let's work out a solution. Then let's co-deliver it and work out which bits we can all play into. And I think it's strengthened the resolve to continue down that path. Um, so that's 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 one point. And I think we've, we've, we've played well in terms of the student voice and how we've engaged with the wider student body. In terms of what we stopped doing, uh, again, in line with perhaps a previous uh, example uh, um, answer, I think um, conclusions have yet to be fully drawn but broadly, I don't think we will go entirely back to the way things were. Um, and I think we could draw that as a very broad conclusion. And as one, uh, one specific example, I would say, we are considering and thinking about the way we meet. And I mean that in all its ills, um, I've noticed the way my diary is, is significantly different. And I didn't, ha I don't, there's, there's bits of, you know, if I put the time in the diary and all of a sudden it gets taken up, I think there's something else uh, to consider as well around the way we have that cooler, water, the, the water cooler conversation and, and what I would call the informal touch points, um, because it feels a bit still, sometimes a bit strange to digitally doorstep someone, knowing that they're probably in a meeting, but I'll just, uh, but I've noticed my email go down as well, um, but other forms of communication rise in its place. So I think the way we meet and the way we interact in order to drive forward the functions and the priorities of the, of the institution is under review. And I would be surprised if that went back entirely to the way it was. So I think, I suppose my, my broad headline answer is, we're gonna stop doing some old habits, um, which are which are in a in a pre-pandemic world. But I don't have all the answers yet. I'm sorry, it's a, it's a messy <laughs> answer again. It's the way that's where no, we are. And some, of, and some of it will, I suppose, evolve organically. And it's a question yes. of how, how much kind of, how, how attentive it is possible to be to some, to some of these questions. Um, yes. I mean, Andrew, you um, you articulated something that you, your students really welcomed, uh, which was the sort of the, this, the employer engagement and, and support, and that you're going to kind of keep, keep, keep some of that going. Um, but is there anything you would like to particularly highlight as being something that you're going to keep, keep on doing after the pandemic, or indeed something that you're no longer going to do? I would agree with Sam. I, I think that there are, we had, originally we were a small independent higher education institution before we became part of the university. And I think that allowed us a lot more capability when the pandemic struck because we were, we were of a different mindset. And we found ourselves being sucked into the complacency and the regularity of a larger university bureaucracy. <laughs> so we were in a good position when this started because we still had that those values and that expectation of we've got to fight for our, ourselves, we can't rely on other people and we've got to be original. And I think that's helped us remarkably. Um, and I think there are some things that we will keep. I think some online student activity is really useful because we're working in a different world. And I think the students need to have exposure to being able to communicate even in the hospitality industry or the events industry through this sort of medium. And therefore to take that away would be effectively pulling us back a couple of steps, having hard, hard won those, those, those benefits. I think what it's also done is it's, um, it's reiterated the, the importance and the value of work, the work environment for our students. No longer do they just sort of think, oh, well, we're just going in to do a job and that's it. They now actively know why they're going in and actually are enjoying it tremendously because it was taken away. So I think that has had a positive effect. <clears throat> As I say, I think the thing that we're going to stop doing is bureaucracy. Uh, we had a, a clear the desks approach, which is anything that is not absolutely vital, dump it. You know, this is not the time to be filling out forms because somebody needs to fill a, another form elsewhere, which needs to be filed. Um, and so in that regard, we've we've really trimmed down. So what we're not going to go back to and what I'm going to fight tooth and nail against is the same old paperwork and the same old mm. comparatively pointless activities. Yeah. And let's instead do things that are student centred, student focused and that really do add value. 
And of course, the corollary of reducing bureaucracy is, is increasing trust, isn't it? You know, essentially you're saying, let's trust, let's trust our people to, to know what they're doing and get on with it without needing lots of kind of evidence and fulfilling. I'll come back to you on this one, which is that's the, the powers that be, and we've got a very good vice chancellor, don't publish this please, um, because their heads will get bigger and bigger. But, you know, it, it has been the case that they've been forced to, they've been forced to say, look, as heads of department, you know your area better than others. Um, and by and large, it's worked. Mm. You know? So rolling that back would be ludicrous. Uh, thank you, Robin. Can I can I come to you and and just just also with with, with one eye on the time. So um, if, if and and Wendy, I'll come to you in, in a wee sec. I've got I've got one more question to, to wrap us up after this. So if, if there's things you want to pull out that are different from what from what colleagues have said, you know, this this is the opportunity. I mean, I think in a way it's been a great, a horrible but great learning opportunity for us this year because we haven't been delivering that academic program. Um, Warwick's been doing that for us and so we've been able to learn lots and lots of things that, you know, whether it's simulated labs or whatever it might be that we will take forward. I think what I just dwell on um, is I think the pandemic really brought home to us that you can't deliver effectively if you don't also, you know, have an eye to your staff welfare if you're not having the same welfare conversations with your staff that you would with mm -hmm. those students and I think that, that the pandemic drove that home for us and we did things like making sure that team leaders were checking in daily with their reports just for 10 minutes but having that really kind of um, uh, regular connection point and I think ensuring that there is empathy in relationships with staff that we are having really meaningful honest dialogue to use the, the cliched phrase mm -hmm. but I really mean that and I think that's something we will certainly um, carry forward. And mm. um, Wendy what about you? Key, key things to take forward, key things to stop doing? Uh, key things definitely to take forward was the careful consideration of asynchronous and synchronous activities. Mm. Um, you know we had to really start to think about this that when, when we had all the students together we wanted to make things a lot more interactive. It was part of the community building um, as well that we, we, we started to do having to introduce sort of more videos or reading beforehand and I think before now we've kind of sort of thought the students wouldn't do this in their own time and perhaps underestimated the flexibility that it can, can bring so it might be that I think in the future we, we, we won't necessarily feel that we've got to fill in all of the time but try to think very carefully about what, what's the best way to, to, to deliver this in a very in a much more blended um, approach to, to and to allow a little bit more flexibility in the way that we move we move forward. And I mean, in, in, in our final three minutes, I have, have one final question. And with apologies to Diana, this one's not this one's not really for you because this is about uh, you know government and, and, and governance and policy making in the UK particularly. Um, is there? Uh, I mean, we'll all have our opinions about, you know, how useful the government has been during the last 18 months in terms of supporting higher education and higher education students, and it's possibly not something that we would wish to dwell on. Um, but is there something, you know, looking ahead to, uh, you know, a comprehensive spending review, the the, the implementation of the OGO report in, in, in some form of another, uh, the sort of the, 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 the narratives and kind of priorities that are coming out of government, is there something that you would like to see that would help you kind of deliver on your mission as, as, as best as you possibly can create that kind of positive environment for you to do that. Um, Sam, can I, I'm seeing a nod, so I'm going to start with you. Yeah, I think, I think it's acknowledgement of regionality mm. um, and, the, and the regional differences that and the context that our students come from, sit within whilst they're with us and go out into uh, in, in the employment landscape, because uh, we do see those significant disparities. Um, and we do know that the impacts of those disparities then do have longitudinal effects. So I think um, uh, some of the early experimental uh, proceed uh, um, um, conversations in the HE bill around proceed and its uh, uh, absolutism in the way that it's me measured, um, I think it would be very helpful to actually recognise regional strengths and differences in the way that the government deals with it, which will then also seem, in, in my, my somewhat naive head, seem to actually then play in a more nuanced manner into the levelling up agenda. Um, because then it recognises where it, where and how it needs to play in a very nuanced manner. So that would be my my uh, request. Yes, that whole that whole data piece is is really it's is really important, isn't it? Getting that it's, kind of the judgments that we that we can make off the information that we have and and, and the the context that is applied in each case. Yes. Um, Robin, can I come to you for this one? Yeah, I think. Um... <laughs> 
I would really like to degree apprenticeships to not always be an afterthought, not to be the complicated thing that we have to work out how to deal with. So just a daft example, but things like having to explain to our students that while they were welcome to come onto site in their employment and have labs in the workplace, we couldn't run academic labs. Mm. You know, even though it's all happening on the same place, it, very challenging conversations. And I think degree apprenticeships are such a huge opportunity, but the disparities in who governs them, who's involved with them, the different approaches of the, of the kind of key stakeholders, it's it's really challenging. And, and there's an opportunity there. We're, we're just not maximising. Mm. And Wendy, very quickly, of course, different context in Wales. Uh, Big, big piece of legislation coming down the pipeline to change the uh, change the way that the sector is regulated. Is there anything that you particularly, you know, particularly would want to see from from that, as that conversation develops over the next year or so uh, that, that would help you be successful? Um, I was actually going to agree with Robin. Our, our biggest issue is the degree apprenticeships. The, the Welsh context is very different. Um, there's only a, uh, three sectors so far that are allowed to offer degree apprentices. Luckily, software is, is for those areas. But um, we, we have no level seven, we're not allowed to do master's level ones. And it's all a, a, a little bit, we only found out today, uh, this week, about what, 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 how many people we were allowed to sort of recruit for uh, September. So everything's sort of a little bit ad hoc at the moment. And uh, that could really tighten up because I think there's some, some fantastic opportunities to work much more closely with uh, employers and really um, improve the whole of the region through uh, the, the apprenticeship opportunities. And that's without going down the wormhole of things like reapplication to the register of apprenticeship training providers, which I could go on about for the next three hours. That's, so. that's, a, that's a whole other <laughs> roundtable. We're not going to talk about that here today. But uh, we are, uh, but for, you know, from, from your lips to the ears of the various education ministers in the, in the, very, in the various areas. Um, I, well, we, we, we've run out of time, so it only remains for me to say thank you so much for taking part. It's been really um, informative and instructive and, 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 you know, and, and, and inspiring at times as well. Um, do uh, anyone, anyone who's listening to this recording, do go and familiarise yourself with the, the Edge Foundation's report, Rethinking Higher Education uh, for the 21st Century. Uh, you'll find out more about all of the case studies uh, that you've heard, heard about today and all the kind of interesting things that are going on. Um, and if you are listening to, then, you know, th thank you for joining us and uh, presumably do, do, do follow up uh, with anything that you've uh, heard today with directly with the Edge Foundation. Thank you.